Good morning, church. Merry Christmas. It's very special to worship with you all this morning, uh, the Lord's Day, Christmas morning. Praise the Lord. It doesn't happen every year, but when it does, it's really cool. Thank you especially to all the families who brought all their kids out on Christmas morning to church. Uh, that, I know from experience, is not the easiest thing, and we really appreciate you being here. So thank you specifically to moms and dads. Let's open the Word. We're wrapping up our Advent series in Matthew chapter 2 as we take a closer look at the last leg of the Magi's journey. So let's stand as we're able and read Matthew 2, verses 9 through 12. Again, Matthew 2, verses 9 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Please be seated as we pray. Lord, now we ask that you would guide us in your word, give us understanding of your word, and help, it, help us to apply it to our lives. We are hungry for your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It's only four verses that we're looking at today, but man, are they jam-packed with lessons to be learned and spiritual truths to be applied. Specifically, the actions of the Magi. What they do in the story is really interesting. Not every verb we're going to look at, but there's really two major things that they do that I think are worth noting, worth writing down, and worth remembering. First, the Magi express joy at God's leading. They express joy at God's leading. It seems like the Magi spent a very short amount of time with Herod. They, they almost seem disinterested in Herod. And now they're pleased to get on their way. They're eager to find the true reason for their journey. A new king has been born. Christian mentioned last week that it would have been pretty controversial to walk up to a king like Herod and ask him where the newborn king is so you can go worship him. Imagine that, right? I think these guys are pretty lucky to get away with their heads still attached to their necks. But in any case, verse 9 tells us that they went on their way. And like, like God leading his people, Israel, in the wilderness, the same star that the Magi saw has now appeared again and leading them on their way to their final destination. That's a pretty astounding picture. A star in the night sky appears to lead these men to a specific place, a little house in a little town. The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. It's the end of verse 9. Man, that's an interesting star. Much has been made of the star. There's a lot of theories on what it is and Rarely do you see a nativity scene, without, nativity scene without some representation of this star. I think the star presents us with a great opportunity to talk about something worthwhile, 
worthwhile in our individual relationships with God and how we understand how he communicates to us. So, we're going to dive headfirst into the topic of the star this morning. Hold on, brace yourselves, here we go. There have been many theories as to what the star could be, and they're all very interesting. It could be, for instance, the alignment of a group of planets like Jupiter and Saturn coming together. These magi would have certainly been believers in what we now know, uh, what we now call astrology, or the interpretation of the movements of planets, planets and heavenly bodies to interfere with or impact our daily lives. That was divination, a way to tell the future. It's not something a Christian should really be into, but they were. That was part of their job. And we know that Saturn and Jupiter actually had a conjunction in the constellation of Pisces in 7 BC, and that's very interesting. It was a real astronomical event. And they would, have had, they would have interpreted that sign specifically as something really important. Or how about, how about this theory? Here's another one. Maybe it was a supernova. A supernova. Did you know that Chinese astronomers in 4 BC recorded a supernova that was obvious in the night sky and visible at daytime? 4 BC. Very close. But of all of the astronomical theories on the Christmas star, the one that I think has the most merit is that it's a comet. If you're really interested in this topic, and you've got to be really interested in this topic to want to buy this book, there is an excellent book, believe it or not. I'd recommend it. It's called The Great Christ Comet by a theologian and astronomer named Colin Nichol. He spent his time getting all of his degrees in Bible and was fascinated by this topic and went back and got more degrees in astronomy. You should read it. It's fascinating. Crossway puts it out. You can find it on Amazon. He tracks how one particular comet that behaved unexpectedly would have caught the attention of men like the Magi. And these men would have taken this as a serious sign of a coming ruler. The star is described as rising and moving pointing, and as being visible for nearly two years. For many, this sounds like the actions of a comet like the Hale-Bopp comet, or something similar. We know comets have behaved this way. Okay. Does this really matter? Who cares, right? Isn't all we really need to say, God brought them there somehow? Well, no. It's the least we need to say. Whatever the, whatever the star actually was, it's certainly true that it was God's doing. Yes, God brought them to Bethlehem. But when we simply dismiss the conversation about what the star could possibly be as irrelevant or unnecessary, we're actually doing something really modern. Let me explain. In our culture, our default belief as Christians and wider culture is that we don't really expect God to work in the world. We don't even really expect God to work through natural means to accomplish his purposes. We expect him, if he's going to act at all, to do something supernatural and super crazy, which he does. He does supernatural things. But we have a hard time 
connecting the action of God with something that we think happens naturally. For instance, if you broke your leg and the doctor put your leg in a cast and it healed over time, we wouldn't immediately attribute that healing to the action of God. God didn't heal your leg, someone might say. Modern medicine did. Fair enough. But here's the problem with our default beliefs. God is actually in control of all things. He doesn't just stand back and let things happen. If your leg was broken and it was put in a cast and healed over time, your leg healed because of the wisdom of the doctor. True. But also because of the goodness of God. They aren't mutually exclusive. They're both true at the same time. We call this God's providence. This is the doctrine of God's providence. He doesn't just wind things up like a robot toy you might open on Christmas and let it go. That's not what God does. God is involved with the outworking of his plan right now. Paul says this about Jesus. He is before all things and in him all things are held together. Present tense. Again, Paul says of God, for from him and through him and to him are all things. One of the best biblical examples of how God's providence works is found in Genesis 22. You know the story. Abraham is given a crazy command. His one and only son, a miraculous baby, he's commanded by God to sacrifice and burn on an altar. And so he does. He brings his son to the top of a mountain. He lays him on an altar. And right as he's going to stab his son, God intervenes. And it just so happens, right around the corner, a ram was caught in a thicket. Caught in a thicket by the horns. Nobody reads this story and thinks that the ram is anything less than God's provision for the sacrifice, right? We're not dumb. We can understand how a story works. God's providing for the sacrifice. But that's just a normal ram getting caught in a normal thicket. And we know that God providentially brought it about that the ram would get caught right there and accomplish his purposes. This is what it means for God to be governing all things. Nothing happens outside of his providential power, including things we can't even see or imagine out in the universe, stars and planets and supernovas and comets. The God who has decreed all things from eternity past providentially executes his decree in history so that his purposes are accomplished. I'm going to say that again. The God who has decreed all things from eternity past providentially executes his decree in history so that his purposes are accomplished. This is true of the star and every other aspect of the story of the birth of Christ. God acts through things that seem mundane. We talked about this last night. God uses mundane things. We pray that God would provide for our needs. And so what does he do? He, he provides a job. We pray that God would heal us. 
so he gives us medicine. We pray that God would speak to us, so he gives us his word. We expect that the Christmas star must be an angel or something like that because we think that's more dignified of God or even more believable than him working through an actual astronomical event. But that's not a very good assumption about God. He works through normal things all the time. So could it have been an angel or some type of special revelation? Sure. Yes, sure. But these were smart guys. As Christian brought out last week, these were magi of Babylon from the heritage of Daniel, probably. They were smart guys, educated. They could calculate, we we know this objectively, they could calculate when something would happen in the heavens years and years beforehand. They had it all mapped out, and they were right. They knew how the stars worked. So I think it's safe to assume that God is actually speaking their language here. God is speaking a language that they can understand. Because God has a distinct purpose for bringing the Magi to the feet of Christ. In the book of Matthew, it isn't the Jewish shepherds who show up first to worship Jesus. It's good to read these stories back to back if you were here last night with us. It's good to read about the shepherds the normal everyday people. In fact, we might say the poor people, that's Luke's point, who show up to worship Jesus first, the lowly. But Matthew's point is the Gentiles show up first, the pagans, those who are really into astrology show up first to worship Jesus. Gentiles worship Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, before anyone else. And that's that's Matthew's whole point. It's really the whole purpose of all of chapter 2. They show up first to worship Jesus. So how is God going to bring these pagan wizards from Babylon to travel all the way to Judea in order to worship at the feet of a peasant baby in the little town of Bethlehem? He spoke their language. He most likely sent a real historical sign into the heavens. You see, God speaks to us in ways that we can understand. Let me, let me say that again, in case, in case you doubt that. God speaks to you in ways you can understand. God condescends to us. John Calvin says, he lisps to us. He uses our language to communicate eternal truths, just like he did for these magi. So, whether it was a supernova planetary conjunction or a comet or some other thing, we may never know for certain. We don't know. But what we can know is this. God speaks to us in ways that we can understand. And he expects us to follow, just like the Magi. He reaches out to us, often through mundane, everyday things, so that we can participate in his story. Praise the Lord for that. These guys had gone on a long journey and now they are nearing the end. The star went before them and came to rest over the place where the child was, the text says. Apparently it was obvious to the Magi where the star was pointing. It was pointing to a particular house in a small little city. And that's pretty wild to think about if it was actually a star. 
But look at their response to that. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So slow down, read that again. What did they actually rejoice over? It's not Jesus, interestingly enough. They rejoice over the star. More specifically, they rejoice because they're being led by the Lord. They realize their journey is at an end, that the Lord has brought them where they need to be. Ultimately, they rejoice because of God's sovereign, providential guidance. It brings them joy. And here's where we land the plane on the discussion of the star. Whether God provides for you through supernatural means or mundane means, do you rejoice with exceeding joy at his leading? I feel very grateful that God has provided me with something much better than a star if I want to know what he wants me to do. He's given me his spirit. And he's given me his word. Yet, how often do I rejoice? How often do I rejoice with exceeding joy over God's self-revelation to me? In the same way these magi rejoice over a simple star. If we want to know what God requires of us, we don't have to look up to the heavens and look for a sign. We don't have to hope for a star. We've been given a great gift, preserved through the centuries and delivered to us. It is God's word disclosed to you. This is it. If you want to, go, if you want to know God's will for your life, look no further. Don't neglect the scriptures. I love the Bible. I love the word. But is it a constant joy to me? Is it a constant joy to you? Uh, That's a convicting question. May we approach the word of God with the same joy the Magi had about the star. Amen? And if we want to understand the scriptures and we want to apply them to our lives, we need to be in step with the Spirit. We've been given the Holy Spirit who leads us, who guides us where we should go. He helps us understand his word and he changes us to look more like Christ. And praise God for that. He's given us himself. And not just individually. I mean, as if that wasn't enough. He gives the Spirit to us corporately. As a community. And he's leading us as a community. The Spirit and the Word are our shining star in the night sky. Showing us where we need to go. But again, as if that wasn't enough. I want to read a quote to you from Charles Spurgeon on what should cause the greatest joy. He says this, We seek not the star of inward feeling or outward signs, but Jesus himself. Show me thyself, Jesus, and I will rejoice with exceedingly great joy. We've been given the gift of Jesus Christ, the greatest example of God's self-revelation and condescension. That's Christmas. Let's rejoice over that this morning. Amen? The wise men saw God's providential leading and they rejoiced. That's the first 
action worth noting this morning. But second, they worship the king. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. You know, it's, it's hotly debated what's actually happening here. The Magi walk into the house, they see the child and they see his mother, and the text says they fell down and worshipped him. Okay, so here's where the debate is. Did they actually worship Jesus as God, or are they paying him homage like you might to a king? We'll come to a solid conclusion in a bit, but first, let's just talk about what they did. First, it says they fell down. The ESV gives the impression that maybe they could have tripped over themselves and fell down on their faces, but that's not really what happens. When we look at nativity scenes and we see the wise men, they're usually kneeling with really great dignity and they look really cool, and that's not really it either. What they did was lay themselves flat before Jesus. A closer translation might be they threw themselves down before him. And that was a common practice when people entered the presence of a king. It was the ultimate sign of submission and respect. Because picture these wise men, these magi, walking into this small house in this backwater town of Bethlehem. Imagine them laying themselves flat on the ground, this dirty floor, before a two-year-old. What would, a, what would Mary and Joseph thought of that? That would have been pretty astounding. We're so familiar with this story, we don't usually slow down and think about the radical reversal of what's taking place, of what's expected here. We would first expect to find a newborn king in a palace, not in a small house in Bethlehem. Yet here they are. And that's, that's the first of many examples in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus' kingdom looks different from worldly kingdoms. In talking about his kingdom in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This kingdom that Jesus would bring would look a lot different. And it starts here in this little house in Bethlehem with the Magi falling at his feet. Now, as we've already discussed, some say the Magi are really only paying homage to a king. They're not actually worshiping him. But you know, I don't think that interpretation really flies. I mean, these guys could look around them and see that this kid wasn't born in a palace. They knew he wasn't Herod's son. Caesar hasn't declared that this baby would take over this province. They weren't given command from their king to come and recognize his new son in Bethlehem. They recognize that Jesus is a king, yes, but it seems like they're also recognizing him as the king of kings. Christian again brought out last week the fact that these wise men probably came from Persia or Babylon, and again, that they were of the heritage of Daniel. 
He probably passed on the teaching of the Jewish Messiah, the Messiah of Israel, the Son of Man. If you read the book of Daniel, the Son of Man language is all there. These magi would have been, they would have known the significance of the foretold King of the Jews and how his throne would have been established forever in the line of David. So I think when they fall down on their faces, they're actually worshiping Jesus and they are calling him king. Because after all, you can't really worship Jesus without calling him king. And it's not just a personal statement either. It's a political statement. A real political statement to call Jesus your king. Jesus may be your friend. You may even consider him your savior. But is Jesus your king? Do you worship Jesus the king? Do you belong to his real kingdom above all other allegiances and political affiliations? Have you actually, in real life, bowed to Jesus Christ in every aspect of your life? Next, they offer Jesus their gifts. And we know these gifts, they're as Christmas as eggnog and pine trees, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The wise men offer them to Jesus. And here's another reason why I think they're actually worshiping him. The word that Matthew used to say, offer, is most commonly used in reference to sacrifices in the temple. These are hefty sacrificial, weighty gifts offered to the God King, Jesus Christ. So let's talk about them. Again, much has been made of the gifts, just like the star. Much has been made of their symbolism, and they are very symbolic. Gold is gold. We know about gold. We still like gold. It's precious, and its value is self-explanatory. Frankincense is a nice-smelling resin that can be extracted from certain trees in Arabia and then dried and burned. Wealthy and royal people would burn this resin for really important occasion, but, occasions, but it was mostly burned in temple worship. That's where you'd find frankincense. Myrrh is actually really similar to frankincense. It's kind of a, just a different kind. It's, again, a resin extracted from trees, but it was more popular to be used in, in perfumes. Okay, so you'd find myrrh most often in, in royal perfumes or really wealthy people's perfumes. Together, they make up a fitting gift for a king, right? So first and foremost, these gifts are royal gifts. They're a recognition that Jesus deserves them as a king. And through them, the wise men are calling Jesus their ruler. But that, if that was the only legitimate level of symbolism to the gifts, then that's good enough. That's pretty remarkable. The book of Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 6, says this. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. 
Frankincense and myrrh are both mentioned here in connection to the first son of David in the royal line. And now, there's no, no coincidence here that Matthew is using them of the greater son of David. The final end to the Davidic line. Jesus is king. Psalm chapter 72, verses 10 and 11, foretells of the homage other kings would pay to the Messiah. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations served him. We read in Isaiah chapter 60 at the beginning about how these gifts would be brought right before the feet of the king. In this scene in Matthew 22, these prophecies are all fulfilled. The wise men, the three kings, if you will, recognize Jesus as the king of kings. But there's been other levels of symbolism assigned to these gifts through time. Irenaeus, an old church father, introduced the idea of gold symbolizing the kingship of Christ, frankincense symbolizing the deity of Christ, and myrrh symbolizing the death of Christ. And I like this. I think Irenaeus is onto something. I think we can read that symbolism as significant here, even if it wasn't the intent of the Magi. Gold is probably the most fitting gift for a king. Frankincense was most commonly used in temple worship, being burned for God as a pleasing aroma. It definitely communicates to us that Jesus isn't just an earthly king. He is a God king. And myrrh, while a common perfume for royalty and wealthy people, is also used to anoint the dead. It's commonly believed in Matthew chapter 26, which we'll read many months from now, that the woman who anoints Jesus is doing so with myrrh. And church tradition holds maybe even the myrrh that the wise men give here. Jesus says there in Matthew 26, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. And so through these three gifts, we can be reminded of three important truths and we can ask three important questions. The first truth is this. We've heard it all morning. Hopefully it doesn't come as a surprise. Jesus is king. He came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of heaven. And he reigns over that kingdom. So the first question is, do you belong to this kingdom? If not, it's by faith in the son of God that you enter it. The second truth is this. Jesus is God. He's not just king. He's God. God himself was born into this world. And all people will someday recognize the deity of Christ. So the second question is this. Do you who believe proclaim the deity of Christ? Do you tell others that God has come in the flesh? It's a remarkable fact. Has it changed your life? The third truth is this. Jesus, the God King, died. 
died for the sake of sin. And the third question is this. Did he die for your sins? Forgiveness of sin, the thing that separates us from God eternally, forgiveness of sin through the death of Christ can only be had through faith in him. The three truths go together. Jesus is God and King. And if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you too can have the forgiveness of sins because of his death on the cross. I'd ask you again to notice the posture of the Magi. This is the posture required of all of us. Have we laid ourselves out before the King of Kings in every aspect of our lives? And do we do this daily? What better time to start the habit of daily submission to the King of Kings than on Christmas morning? A recognition every day that he is in control and that you want to serve his kingdom. What better time to start? Amen? I'd encourage you to make that a regular part of your prayer life. To recognize Jesus as king. This theme of the kingship of Christ will will continue to come up almost weekly as we go through the gospel of Matthew over the coming months. And I'm going to continually remind you to submit yourselves to the King of Kings. This will be the first of many. Because we need to be reminded all the time. If we stop pledging allegiance to Jesus, we're going to start pledging allegiance to ourselves. Jesus is King and Lord of my life, not me. And I need to be reminded of that every day. I'm like a rebel who kind of likes the king sometimes. And because of my tendencies, I'm constantly tempted to revolt against him. And by his goodness and by his grace, I can be kept in the kingdom. But I need to submit to my king. And so do all of us. Amen. The final verse of our text today demonstrates the obedience of the Magi. Verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So they don't go back to the current king of Judea, Herod, because God spoke to them again in a way they would understand. These are magi, right? They deal in astrology and dreams. That's their thing. So God speaks to them in a dream and they listen. They go home. They don't stay with Jesus. They go back. Presumably to bring the good news. This was a life-changing experience for them. I doubt that they would keep this to themselves now. And man, I wonder if they ever found out what happened. That this little baby, this two-year-old that they found in this little peasant house in Bethlehem, one day rose from the grave for their justification. As we celebrate the new year and celebrate the birth of Christ, let's remember his kingship. Yeah? Let's remember that very soon his kingdom will be made manifest on earth. Amen? Let's pray.
Lord, I lift up to you those this morning who have not named you king. I pray that they would be convicted in their hearts now. Lord, we are all rebels in this room. Rebels who have taken up our own cause, wanted to assert our own rights over you, that you are the king. And every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that you reign. Lord, thank you for the story today of these magi from Babylon who travel all the way to worship at your feet, recognize you as king and as God. Lord, we recognize that too this morning. You are our king, you are our God. And we thank you again for your death on the cross and your resurrection from the grave. We love you. We submit ourselves to you. We pray now that we would be reminded of this the rest of our day as we celebrate your birth. In Jesus' name.